Hey guys, welcome back to the Jen Habaker Book Club Podcast. And if you are listening to this on a regular For the Love Podcast feed, welcome. You are getting a little sneak peek into just everything awesome at the Jen Hatmaker Book Club, which we would love to have you be a part of. You can join us at jenhatmakerbookclub.com. We have a seat reserved for you. So, all right, book clubbers. This month, like all months, you turned up in the chat feed for this one. There's just a ton of like robust conversation around this month's pick, which I really thought there would be. I knew there would be. I loved seeing your conversations and joining your conversations. Really interesting thoughts around this one. So I think it's pretty safe to say we all very much enjoyed July's pick, which was Blood, Bones, and Butter by Gabrielle Hamilton. So I have said this, but I have probably read Blood, Bones, and Butter 10 times. It's my favorite food memoir. I She is as brilliant a writer as she is a chef. And so it's like this perfect combination of a beautiful, complicated, romantic, complex story. And then all this food and imagery, of course, are the parts in Italy are just to, to not be outdone. And then with this lovely prose, I mean, it's the best of all the worlds and I love it. And I love her and getting to meet her today was a fangirl moment, like really fangirl. I'm so happy. She is just even better than I'd hoped. She's so funny and smart and wise and genuine. Like you're going to love her. So, okay. If you've, if you've just been under a rock this month, Gabrielle Hamilton, of course, is she's a chef. She's an author. She's a restaurant owner. She lives in New York City. And her she tells us in her book that her roots in food and cooking were very heavily influenced by her mother's French origins, which we talk about a little bit too, which gave her a really interesting food sensibility and a broader palate and even an economy around food in that the the combination of growing up with her mom's French roots, plus being sort of in a spare, sparse financial environment in her family means they didn't waste anything, which of course has served her so well ever since. And so her relationship with food while she was growing up was probably different than most of ours. She foraged in the garden, nothing ever went to waste. And I love to hear her talk about that and how that parlayed forward into her entire career. Also, Gabrielle just happens to be a James Beard Award winner, no big deal, and the winner of the 2018 Outstanding Chef Award, which is a really like monumental accomplishment. So after sort of whipping her way through the culinary world, she just continued to extend her like reach and her fingerprint by entering the literary space, which, I mean, as uh, the book club members you, as you know, she's a beautiful writer, like an incredible writer at some point, And I hate to like steal some of her thunder, but when we were talking, she was just telling me how, like as a literary device, even when she wrote about the middle section, which was all like heat and kitchen and sizzle, that kind of grind of coming up through the, you know, the, the New York city kitchen that she would work really hard to keep her sentences sort of short and staccato and, less syllables, less words. And then when she takes us to Italy with her husband and his family, 
that she let her sentences become longer, that she used words with two or three syllables. And like, I didn't even no- notice that she did that. And I've read this book so many times, but like, that's how good she is at writing in addition to all this incredible food that she is now responsible for putting into the world. And so, of course, me as a writer who also loves food, who also wrote a cookbook, I mean, I just couldn't get enough of it. I couldn't get enough of her, couldn't get enough of this conversation. We talk about where those little boys are now, readers, book club readers that we she introduced us to way back then and what it looks like, what her family looks like now and how it has evolved too. And so um, she's smart and she's charming and... I really loved some of the things she had to say today. I think you are too. I got, it felt encouraging and a little bit healing and even caused me to sit back and go, what do I want to reevaluate after this last year? So you're going to love her so, so much, as much as we are enjoying her book. And she'll also tell us everything she's working on and what's coming up next. So you guys, it's my tr- genuine delight to welcome the very wonderful Gabrielle Hamilton to the show. I'm so like genuinely happy to meet you. I've been a fan of yours for a really long time. So thank you for saying yes to this podcast. And, you know, I got thousands of readers in this thing and they love you. I've probably read Blood, Bones and Butter. I've probably read it 10 times. Oh, get out. Some kind of psychopath, I'm sure. Psychopathic tendencies, but I just love it. I love it. I love food. I love good food writing, which is sometimes hard to find. You know, sometimes you find great chefs, great food stories, but not necessarily good food writing. And so you've managed to do them all. And it's just a delight to read, honestly. It makes me very honored and pleased that you have read more than once. Many people will say to me, oh my God, I read it in two hours or something. And I'm like, oh my God, that took me five years to write. Please. (laughs) please don't read it in 10 minutes (laughs) although I appreciate that it's a quick and easy read or I understand that you can turn the pages but oh (laughs) well it just combines every like for people who love food it's all in there it's the delicious food words and food things but then it's some drama and some you know personal we'll get into all that but um, it is really with the when I read, I read it when it first came out and then I was insufferable just telling all oh, this is your next read. Don't speak to me until you've read it anyway. So I was so happy that it's in paperback. And I told my development team, I want to put this book in book club. That's just what's happening. Pick a month. So this is your month. I really appreciate it. So nice. Yeah. Yeah, you're welcome. Okay, let's get in here. So I told you, and it was no hint of a lie, that I have probably read Blood, Bones, and Butter probably 10 times. My copy just got so stupid that I I got a second copy. And if anybody knows me, they have read that book because I forced it upon them. And so I really just loved it. I, In my opinion, your food writing at your type of food memoir and your style and your prose is just the top of the genre. I can hardly think of a book that I enjoyed as much that was as beautifully written and as vulnerable. I guess you just decided that you were going to really talk about your life. Did that come easy? 
No, I would say I probably resisted it at, at the beginning. It, it started out to be, it was supposed to be a book. I think I had pitched a book, like a series of lively essays about food. And it started to become something else. My life kept coming up and getting onto the page because anything I have to say about food or how I learned about food or how I come into the food sphere or whatever they call it, space, is through my personal life. So my life started to just get onto the page. And then rather than try and wipe it off, so to speak, and just leave the stains of my life on the page, I thought maybe it would be better if I actually just do this on purpose. And then it's not hard as I, I find writing is, you know, you're in charge. I guess that's what I mean. You know, it would be very difficult, obviously, to have like your diary left on the train and someone picks it up and puts it on Instagram. That would be hard. But by the time you're an actual writer and you're writing the work, you're in charge of it and you're in control. That's just a different kind of hard. That's like, well, do I have the technique for this? And how will I handle, you know, perspective and tone and voice and pace? And those are just writer's concerns, not necessarily that it's the intimate or personal. Yeah, that takes a deft hand to weave the story well. And then, of course, in one like yours that involves everyone near to you, of course, everyone that has been in your family and who you chose to create a life with, and you know, it's their story too. And so I, I wonder if you had to handle that with finesse because there are hard parts in there. There are hard memories, you know, there are hard truths in every, you know, in every story, of course. And so was that something you had to do a little early work on in terms of getting permissions or even just acknowledgement? Well, I love that question. I see the territory is fraught or can be fraught when you have to write about other people who are alive and you want to and must tell your story if that's how you go. Gosh, I don't know if this sounds sort of (laughs) self-aggrandizing or something, but I was like, I would never want to write in a way where you sort of catch people out or they finally learn how you feel about them when it's in print and it's on the newsstand or something that is so not my style so I wrote about people in my life only in as much as they affected my relationship to this career or this food world and so anyone else doesn't exist or they didn't make it into the pages and all of every single person who appears in the book I gave the book to long before it was a book Every single person who appears in it said, please read this, please vet and tell me any changes you'd like to make. And I honored all the people's requests. And if you can believe it, I think that many people who appeared in the pages actually feel like they dodged a bullet. And that if this is the most damning thing that I said in these pages, they were very compliant and gave it back to me with very minor right away, Gabrielle, like take it away. It's okay. um, So I, I'd also like to think that I'm a generous writer, a generous person. I'm not uh, here to hurt anyone. That's just not how I go through life, not on the page either. So I feel like I actually really took good care of everyone who appears in the pages of the book. Yeah. At no point did it read like you were using your book contract as a way of giving somebody else their comeuppance. You know, it didn't have that sort of sear at all to it, but it felt very human and really relatable. I mean, in the book club, of course, we come from all sort of walks of life, but it's as we're discussing your book this month in our community, 
there's just a million points of connection for almost all of us, whether it's from some of your childhood years or your grinding it out middle years, or even like being a working mom, that's really resonant with a lot of us. And so I'm so glad to hear that. It's, it can be very confusing. I think when you write in this genre, the first person essay or the memoir where it's ostensibly so about me and Mimi, you know, as they say, all autobiographical, all memoirs are written by someone named Mimi (laughs) 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 of the genre. I really understand. And so it's a, you have to really do the work all the time while you're writing, like, here's a little story about me and my navel (laughs) (laughs) that you are making sure that you're actually telling a more universal story and a more relatable story by more and more people, even if it's counterintuitive that you're writing more specifically of your own tiny personal experience. But the more granularly you can do that, the more accurately, the more truthfully, with fewer sort of fake flourishes to distract, the more other people can relate their own lives to the material. So it's it's counterintuitive and a little tricky to get a hold on, but once you figure it out that the reader finds themselves in the work, if you're doing a good job. Yeah, that has been the reader experience. And I think it's also because you didn't shy away at all from discussing a lot of your interior life, what you were afraid of and what you were worried about. And where you had sort of cognitive dissonance in your own life and all the things that internally we all are constantly processing and managing. You didn't gloss over any of that. It seemed like you included that sincerely. It was very, very relatable, you know, because on the surface of it, your story can look very shiny. It's, it's, you're such an incredible success story. And so I, we all appreciated that you let us peek behind the curtain quite a bit and kind of see the rumblings of your your mind. I do wish we would all do that for each other more often. I, I do wish we would just in our daily non-literary lives, just sort of tell more accurate truths to each other about our experiences. And we would be helping so much, you know, if we didn't just sort of, Oh yes, you're get you just got engaged to get married. Like congratulations, honey. When in fact you might want to say like, ah, oh, yeah. oh. <laughs> I mean, a lot of marriage is good, but can you? And when we just say marriage is hard, you know, or oh, you're gonna have a baby. That's so great. Or, I'm just saying, you know, that if we were just a little more honest or truthful with each other, it would help out. And I think that's the writer's job is to take those things that we sort of know inside of ourselves or in the world, but we didn't have the words for them or we didn't have whatever. That's the gift of the writer is to make sense of what otherwise sort of floats around inside us that we haven't named. And the writers names it. They happen to put some words down that <laughs> they do. And then it has this incredible alchemy because we get to sort of practice that transparency just through reading, because you're doing it, you're setting an example, you're modeling it as we're reading your words. It's sort of kind of a safe environment to try out that sort of genuine authenticity 
to sort of then translate into our real lives. It's a kind of community I'm also trying to build too with with the women that I lead, which is harder, grittier, but profoundly more true. You know, last year I went through a um, a really unexpected divorce. Just didn't see it coming, and we've been married 20, 26 years. And so I've really like taken what you just said to heart in that marriage, there just needs to be more truth telling period about how hard it all is and what is actually going on. And so I've really leaned toward the truth tellers this year. I don't find the shiny penny version comforting at all, at all. I'm seeking out the people who have been real honest with their pain and truthful with the story. And those are the storytellers that are actually giving me like comfort and relief. You're one of those. It does give then permission. It's so fun to meet someone who's, who's playing in their truth telling. That's neither histrionic nor, you know, just fronting in any direction over shiny or over, uh, you know, tragic that to just find and meet someone who's just saying, yes, this is my experience. It gives permission to the others, to, to you to do it as well. You know, so I think you're doing very good work. Mm, thank you. I want to talk a little bit about your childhood experiences with food because they they were so formative for you as they were for most of us, for good or for bad. I wonder if you could just, of course, you tell us in the book, but I'd love to just hear from your own mouth a little bit more about this rural French kitchen that you grew up in. Your mom is such a, you've written her in such a wonderful way. It's just so visceral. I feel like I could see her if she walked up to me on the street. I know who she was. Can you talk a little bit about those roots and what ultimately in the long game here, your childhood experience with with food gave you and what you're grateful for? And maybe what, is there anything that you wish was different? That woman, my amazing mother, could identify plants, fruits, edible things growing in the woods, could find the mushrooms, put her children out into the woods, pulled the ramps and leeks and ferns and watercress in the stream. And also then back to the house and she knows how to, you know, cure the cast iron pan and kill the chicken. (laughs) So, I mean, it's, it's pretty phenomenal what she gave to us in that very visceral and capable, extremely capable. And then I think her frugality as well, her, her, her required frugality. She was trying to feed a family of seven on this rather mercurial paycheck as my father was, you know, he's an artist. He wasn't, he wasn't consistent in that way. So I thought she did an amazing job also of constantly repurposing things, cutting the moldy end off and like, actually this is a perfectly good piece of cheese or cutting out the bruise and this apricot will be delicious in a puree. (laughs) So I inherited that too. So I, I love from her that I also just ate broadly, widely. There was no, this is our routine on Friday. We always have this one thing. She just cooked what she could and, and, what she found, what she wanted. And so I learned to taste everything as a, as a young person. And I think from my father who (laughs) couldn't cook, but he really knew how to throw a party and was so generous and loved large groups and 
gregarious and outgoing and romantic. And I was glad to inherit that from him as well. So the two sides of these people that I got to be influenced by. And I think the only thing that I would do differently, my mother certainly made the table a battleground. And I wouldn't lay that on children anymore. Mm. You know, that was Meaning a very, like, eat this, you can't get up till you eat this. Is that that's what you right. Mean? Yeah. yeah. And, and with her, <laughs> had some extreme experiences with, I mean, ending up with the kid run away for two days in a foreign country <laughs> and had to be brought back by the local police and was missing. And I, I, I found that terrifying being the youngest child. It's like watching somebody guillotined in the town square and you know the <laughs> the onlookers get the message. <laughs> no, totally. Like, and okay, I over food, okay. like over a side dish. So <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And to finish your plate when you're not hungry and just all that sort of like just don't do that to your kids. Just don't. Just <laughs> that's good. That's good. I love that. And I obviously you she gave you a really expansive palette which you had to have felt, I mean, did you feel different from your peers, uh, you know, who are bringing whatever they're bringing, bologna sandwiches? And I'm curious how you're growing up, your childhood friends and peers peered in on your kind of family food experience. Yeah, I had that classic, it was ostracized. (laughs) It was sort of disgusting what we brought to school to eat our lunch boxes weren't lunch boxes they were brown paper bags we had to recycle the saran wrap like three days in a row and wash it when we got home and hang it over the spoon to dry and that we were bringing oily ratatouille or pate sandwich or rotten fruit that was perfectly good in her mind and school kids did not appreciate that and you could never trade but of no, course you could never trade later in life <laughs> It became an asset, of course, when I, you rebel for a little bit when you first get your own home or your own, you're in college and you're allowed to feed yourself. And I'm like, yeah, Doritos. (laughs) (laughs) But after you, after you indulge your swing to the other side, you kind of come back to. That's so great. Some of it still holds though. My mom refused to let us have sugar cereal. I don't know why that was the outpost that she decided to die on. But to this day, I mean, I'm 46 years old and I could still just go face down in a bowl of like Lucky Charms. <laughs> it's just still so naughty. I, it still does. And I'm like, I'll do what I want. I'm grown. <laughs> you know, they teach you to, that's a trick with, with kids. I don't know if you know that, but if you make the rules that they're not allowed to break, so actually unimportant. But then when they break them, they're not going to hurt themselves because you've told them something like you can't have sugar cereal. And then they, you know, they, they sneak away and they, you know, overdose on sugar cereal. And it's really not that bad. <laughs> it's really not that bad. And they live. <laughs> yes, they live. Right. As opposed um, to like, don't ever have a glass of wine or, you know, something like that. It's, totally. That's absolutely. what they tell you to do. One of my favorite things about summer is the food. Smoky grill marks and hot barbecue and cold beverages, all the burgers and toppings. It's just such a fun way to feed the family and entertain. When I was in the thick of recipe testing this last year for my cookbook, I discovered ButcherBox. And it has literally been a game changer. A game changer. Here's why. 
ButcherBox delivers the highest quality, humanely sourced meat shipped right to your doorstep. Each ButcherBox box ships with 9 to 11 pounds of product, packed fresh, and then shipped frozen and vacuum sealed, making it simple to store in the freezer and grab later. There's still time for backyard barbecue season, friends, and ButcherBox is in your corner here because they are giving new members free chicken, burgers, and hot dogs in your first box. Just choose between four curated box options or a custom box that lets you choose your favorite cuts. Then ButcherBox ships your order frozen at peak freshness and packed in a recyclable box. And of course, there's free shipping. ButcherBox wants you to enjoy the rest of summer with a special deal. ButcherBox is giving you a special offer of three pounds of chicken breast, two pounds of burgers, and one pack of hot dogs for free. Right now, new members can get this special deal when they sign up at butcherbox.com slash for the love. So that's butcherbox.com slash for the love for free chicken, burgers, and hot dogs in your first box. Great stories are powerful, right? That's why I love this podcast. We get to hear people from all walks of life talking about their obstacles and their wins. And you know another place we get to do that? The Gin Hatmaker Book Club. And I want you to join today because if you love this podcast, you're going to love the book club. Here's the deal. Each month, we'll dive into a fantastic book and we read all kinds of stuff, fiction, memoirs, self-help, all of it. Every single book is something I have read and loved, and I just know you will too. After you sign up every month, I'll send you a box with the book and other fun treats. Plus, your membership comes with a whole slew of perks. You get resources like reading plans, weekly summaries, discussion questions. Plus, you get tons of exclusive community stuff. You get access to our private Facebook group where you can connect with me and all your fellow members. And there's a monthly Facebook live chat session with me and sometimes some surprise guests. Sometimes I pop into the Zoom meetings of our local chapters, which is always delightful. Plus, we do some cool stuff with the book's author. They curate these awesome Spotify playlists just for us. Plus, I record a podcast with the author or another special guest and we talk about the book. It is an incredible way to cap it all off. And you know what makes a book club great? the people. This community is the kindest, most supportive group you can possibly imagine. So sign up today at jenhatmakerbookclub.com. We are here waiting to welcome you into the sisterhood with open arms. So join us at jenhatmakerbookclub.com today. Okay, back to our show. Of course, all of us are drawn and intrigued, even fascinated by the way that you wrote about your marriage, your courtship, this developing young family, just right in the middle of this burgeoning career. I would just love to hear you talk a little bit more about what it was like to to write through that, what it was like to write about that relationship is like interesting as it was, you had some dynamics that were non-traditional and made it so interesting a story to read. 
How was that for you to write? Did that feel particularly tender? The marriage and Michele and the family in Italy, I think that's probably when I started to understand most surely that the book is called, you know, Blood, Bones and Butter, The Inadvertent Education of a Reluctant Chef, which would lead you and most people to believe that it was a book about my life as a chef. And I, not to do a bait and switch, but I think when I started to write about Michele and, and food, I understood that it's actually a book about family, love of family, premature loss and dissolution of my originating family, and then this girl's sort of forever after chasing of recreating, recuperating the family that she'd lost as her when she was a child. And so I think when I got to McKinley and Oh my God, met his mom, who I think I was probably more in love with than anyone. And it's so, in a way, if you squinted, resembled the home that I grew up in, except they had like a lot of money and a lot of resources and it was Italian and they were friendly. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Except for those things. (laughs) They were friendly. (laughs) Yeah. So Alda just became such a figure for me. For me, it was such a pleasure to write about that family because I... I aspired to it. I wanted it so much. And I loved those people and I loved that experience, no matter how no matter how much I failed to like get a hold of it or have it <laughs> to have it for myself. But those were not very good motivations, as you know later. Yeah. Well, you made us love them too. Those parts of the book are so romantic. I can't I I can't take it. You're obviously such a good writer. So the pictures that you painted of everything, the textures and the smells and the sounds and the people and the love and the country, it just came through so crystal clear and felt genuinely loving, just genuinely connected. I, I loved that part of the book. And that is hard to recreate. I appreciate you saying that, that beautiful pitch, perfect, connected family. It's a lovely thing. Yeah, but you don't want it to sound like a sort of Chianti Classico commercial. <laughs> you know, it's like, hey, and the children are running in the fields and the big open table of the, I mean, it had to be a little bit real as well. So I think that's just from a craft point of view. The I try to match the right language and the right sentence forming per experience. And so I tend to write longer sentences with uh, words that have more syllables when I'm writing about romantic things. And then it gets a little more staccato and three word sentences when I'm trying to get into the more gritty, sort of that whole catering kitchen life. And, you know, by the time, if you're writing about like dead rats and poop, you want to keep that sort of curt and (laughs) staccato. But when you're writing about Italy, you keep it sort of fluid and longer sentences and whatever. This is just how I manipulate you. <laughs> I It worked. And I actually love hearing you say that. I think that was actually lost on me, even having read the book 10 times, but it just pulled me right along in the way that you wanted it to. I don't know what it says about me as your particular reader, but my favorite, my favorite part of your story inside this particular book is the wild flash and heat kitchen stuff that is so urgent and 
over the top and chaotic. And it, I, for some reason, those parts to me were so exciting and so fun. And I, I love the way that you wrote that. What are your memories of that particular season? Because of course, now you're, you're the queen of your own domain. I mean, you, you're, you're the, this is your kingdom at the time. Of course, you're coming up and you're learning and you're in these spaces with these characters. I mean, my gosh, the people in the kitchen. I'd like now, do you look back on that fondly? Do you look back at that rosy or do you see that as, man, that season was such a grind or maybe both? That's a, a question I would, I really have to contemplate through this brand new and unaccustomed lens that I now suddenly have post COVID. So I would have looked back on all of that oh, the 230 people screeching in for brunch and the 16 egg pans laid down at once and the of the ticket machine coming in with a kind of, oh, swashbuckling romantic view. But I have to say this past 17 months, however long it's been, I wonder if it wasn't a bit of what it, what is it called Stockholm syndrome where you mm, you sure, sort of, of start to really love the Your captor. crap mm-hmm. <laughs> mm. and in fact not only love the crap but look down on people who can't handle it and have a certain and then you you then go on to just perpetuate this idea of like well if you can't hang with the flames and the knives and the speed and the dirt and the heat, then you're just a pussy. And that's just like the worst that I don't really want to participate in that ever again. And I hope unlike, you know, Tony Bourdain really romanticized the pirate ship. I have to say he, he's the writer who, you know, opened up the swinging doors that go back into that kitchen and everyone who read that, he wrote about it so romantically that it, it drew us in and made us want to go back there and be on the pirate ship. But the thing about a pirate ship is it's got, you know, scurvy and there's no toilet paper in the bathroom. Right. That's right. People are dying. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So I have to rethink those, those times now. I, I I don't have to rethink them going forward. I'm not going to work like that. And I'm not going to ask anyone else to either. Wow. That's really interesting. I have of course been to prune I was in New York in December, just when everything was still so incredibly weird. And of course, walked by your restaurant. I was staying right near there and, you know, had all the feelings of, look, it's, it's not open. This is such a hard time. Can you talk a little bit about where you are right now in your relationship with that particular restaurant? What else you have? What else you're doing? What else you're dreaming up? What else you want to do next? The restaurant was fortunate enough to just receive some of the government relief fund. And that allows me to pause. I don't know why I feel tempted to use the word grace to pause sort of gracefully as to, as opposed to the sort of mandated adrenal, (laughs) fearful, confused, sort of traumatic pause that we just had. And now it's sort of, Oh, can I pause for a second here and figure out how I'm going to solve these problems that had been existing all along. And how can I make this space go and still have a really equitable pay scale and have myself make some money also to make sure the work, I'm really enjoying it, that I'm not doing it, grinding my molars in the back of my teeth. And so 
and also to frankly fix some of the 20 year old plumbing and electricity that's <laughs> that's been keeping me up at night <laughs> for yeah. 30 years or for 20 years <laughs> right. so, um, so that's where prune is the moment it sits peacefully while I get to clean her up in every way and then I am finishing my I guess it's my third book if you count the cookbook as a second but I, I'm finishing a another memoir and so I'm I get to be that full-time writer and I have this column for the New York Times where I just write about food once a month and so I it's it's interesting I've become sort of a full-time writer during the pandemic and now I think I will have the restaurant as a more of like a side hustle when I when I reopen rather than what I was doing before which was having this full-time restaurant and trying to jam writing into the tiny crevices that I could carve out so that's those are two pretty full-time careers to smash into one life so that probably has to feel a little bit like a relief do you have a do you have a partner in the restaurant that you are confident handing a big chunk of the reins to no and I don't want that anymore actually that's a, a strong clear emerging truth that I understood during the pandemic. I don't want anyone else in the checkbook. I don't want anyone else on the menu. I don't want anyone else deciding what the playlist will be or what we say. I just, I'm thinking of something very small that feels very much like the prune that I opened in 1999. It does not resemble very much at all the prune I closed in 2020. So that well, interesting. It's it's me and not me and 30 roommates or 30 employees or, you know, just something. I don't mean just me. That's so obviously I can't do it by myself. But more, even that I will make the space look a lot more like a home than I think I'm going to remove anything that's sort of stainless steel and metro shelving, which is so funny because that's what people do in their homes now. They they, yeah, that's they, right. they borrow restaurant design. So I think it'll be really yeah. funny if you come into my You're restaurant right. and it's, you know, wood. Yeah, I love it. It's warm. Yes. I love this. I love hearing you talk about this. What an interesting bit of clarity that this year has brought you. I'm curious, like, is do you feel like this, is also going to affect the menu. It's going to affect the scope of the food. It's going to affect the pace of the kitchen. Some things are hard to sort of dial down. Oh, I think it will affect, but in the best way. I mean, in, in, in many ways, I, even though I did learn to become a chef and I did rise to the restaurant occasion and sort of understand the whole project and how it has to go, but this, you maybe don't know about this about me, but I'm a really, really good home cook. <laughs> and I believe you. that is really what I should be doing. And if I just sort of tone it all down in there and just make my delicious dinners, you will be so happy. And I, I love you that I don't have to now make or think about making 140 portions that will all be exactly the same and that I can reheat you know, that I can get a line cook who doesn't have a lot of experience to produce on Tuesday the same way that she'll do on Monday. <laughs> and, oh, wait, there's a new kid working that shift on Friday. You see what I'm saying? That it's I um, completely see what you're saying. If you're at home and you just put a roast in the oven and then you slice it and you feed 12 people for dinner with that. And, yeah, I don't and they love it. 
put it in the walk-in and label and date it and make sure that it reached the right temperature at the right time. I mean, I'm not saying I'm going to botulize anyone. (laughs) 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 I now have all that, (laughs) you know, health department training. I'm just saying, come on over for dinner and it should feel pretty sweet and delicious. It feels so sweet to hear you talk about it. It feels inviting. It feels warm. It feels cozy and homey and kind of the way most of us like to eat. Honestly, that's, that, that makes me feel like somebody has fed me well, that they love me. And home cooking uh, cooked by a chef. I mean, I think that's, you know, sometimes home cooking has a, a romantic nostalgia attached to it. But in fact, like, you know, my mother-in-law used to burn so many things and, <laughs> and her coffee was terrible. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> and even though she, you know, took such good care of my babies and, cooked the zucchini and her delicious olive oil, et cetera. Like a lot of that food was not delicious. So I do love sure. home cooking by someone who has Isn't all that it? sort of discipline and <laughs> training. That's so funny. I, my sisters and brother and I always joke because we kind of grew up around the Midwestern eighties table, which was such a gauntlet. I mean, it was everything newly processed, which felt so exciting to the very average home cook. And so yeah, you're right. It doesn't all need to be immortalized on a menu, but that thank God you thank God you've got like some actual skills for this. When are you reopening? Do you know? I don't know. I think it'll take some months for sure to to just do the physical work that needs to be done in there. Yeah, don't know yet. I'm so interested right now in elevating and celebrating good things. So, community. I'd like to introduce you to Able. If you're not familiar with Able, they are an ethical fashion brand that employs and empowers women as a solution to end poverty. <laughs> Love. They're deeply devoted also to quality, both in the products they make and in the quality of life they aim to provide. So they invest in, train, and educate women so they can earn a living, break the cycle of poverty, and thrive. And Would you believe it all started with scarves for them in Ethiopia? They met women coming out of the commercial sex industry who asked for help finding jobs. So they trained them to make scarves. And after selling over 4,000 of them in two months, they knew they were onto something. And now Abel has grown from hand-woven scarves to a whole lifestyle brand with leather bags and clothes, shoes, jewelry, and more. I have so much of their stuff that I wear on constant rotation. I cannot say enough good things about Able. Truly, come check them out for the cause and their incredible business practices and stay for the fashion. You can get 20% off site-wide with my code 20GIN at livefashionable.com. So that's 20GIN at livefashionable.com. One thing that I love about the way that you structure and the ethos of your culinary world is your incredible attention that you pay to women, the opportunities that you give to women. It's just obviously a male dominated field, which you had tons of experience inside of. And so I'm curious if that is still the way that you operate. Is that still, it's not a hard and fast rule, obviously that maybe a bit of a North star. So I'm a woman. You are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and 
I opened a restaurant and I opened the restaurant that I wanted to work in, having worked in kitchens that were so unpleasant. And it felt my whole life prior that I was working two shifts at once. And one was just trying to figure out how I could survive in the kitchen and be a female without having to forsake myself in whatever way. So did I have to swear like a sailor and walk like a man? Or did I have to be a little helpless and wear extra lipstick? Or should I giggle at everything? Or should nothing be funny? Or uh, So it was just exhausting. Not to mention you want to also just cook the 600 veal chops that have to be cooked or what have you. So I only just opened the restaurant that I wanted to work in. And many, 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 many women found it very pleasant to work there by the very fact that the the fact of your gender was a non-issue because it didn't even stand out. <laughs> and yet everyone was a total pro and, you know, we have a job to do here. So I think that will remain my North Star is I don't really divide my world by I love women and only women or that sort of chant because there are a lot of women that I meet that I'm like, wow, you are bad. <laughs> like <laughs> you have really bad politics. Bad person. <laughs> <laughs> and I meet a lot of men who are like, you are so great. Your politics are so good or your soul is so good. And so I have really stopped dividing my life into that sort of binary space. Those categories and just sort of, are you a good person? <laughs> then you yeah. can work here. Yeah. And the good news is the older we get, the easier that is to discern. That could be real slimy and gray and squishy when I was younger. But at this point, I feel like I can spot that a mile away. And so I'm grateful for being older and having discernment about surrounding ourselves with just good human people. Um, it can get, get very that. That's our choice. It's so true. Because also you think like, wait, you're my sister. You're a lady. You're, and you're like, wait, why are you betraying me? Yeah, wait, why are you mean as the devil? <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. So I wonder, I don't know how comfortable you are, if this is something you'd be willing to share, but I'd love to hear a little bit about your family right now. And of course, we, we met your family in the book at its tiny little conception, just a little baby family. And so of course, now you've got a completely different dynamic. I'd love to hear about it. That's right. Yeah. Gosh, that book is so old. Yeah, yeah. They were born babies. I live in New York City with my wife, Ashley Merriman, and we are probably on our seventh year. And my two sons are now 17 and 15. That's insane. They, They spend a good part of the year being... 15 and 16, but now they're having this nice few months. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Where there's a lot of age gap as the older ones. Sure, to sure. <laughs> <laughs> my, I, I'm sure this has been known by now, but I have a, my mother-in-law, Alda, is, she died some years ago. I have a pretty decent, sweet, manageable relationship with Michele, the father of my children. I think the COVID really helped with that too. It was so unifying and there was no room for any shenanigans or old resentments. It was sort of uh, mandatory that we cooperate. So that's good. And then my mother is turning 90 in a week and wow, I speak to her on very few occasions. I am writing another book that involves my family. I have now two dead brothers, one of them 
committed suicide and I've been exploring that in this book and what it means for our family or what our family meant in <laughs> in making the possibility for that suicide a possibility. <laughs> so that's the material I'm dealing with. Some heavy lifting. I would say, but I'm going to be friendly and funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what you do. You have a very, very interesting set of skills. That is one of the common comments from our book club community, which was in the middle of all this, you know, hunger and change and struggle. You're just, you're funny. You're really funny. And it's a wonderful bit of levity to pull the reader sort of right along with little pockets of relief just where they're needed. And so I'm glad that you have that tone. I'm glad that you keep that in and you don't force yourself into a genre without it to just be so you know, heavy handed with the story. So what is that? How, how far are you into that book? And when does it come out? I don't know when it will come out. I think I have to hand in this smooth draft that's start to finish smooth in a couple of weeks. So that's my, my ambition. And then I think it generally takes about a year to get a book out into the world. And uh, oh, wow. So you're in the weeds right now. <laughs> <laughs> the two weeks before a deadline or just, I want to just, I hate everything. I hate everyone. I can't believe you said yes to this podcast. Um, and how are those sons? I have a lot of kids. I have five kids and they're all like teenagers and young adults. And I find the teenagers primarily hilarious, but I, I find teenagers, especially boys. I have three sons. Just funny. They're just like animals. They're like puppies that live in your house and they're so wild and they make me laugh. Are you enjoying the teen years? Uh, Jen, if you ever want to just talk to me about your five children, for me, I would just pull up a chair and put my chin in my hands and say, tell me more, tell me more. I wanted five so badly. I wanted, I could have gone for six, but I started late and timed out. <laughs> I always had a suspicion that the teenage years of the children would be my forte and it's turned out to be true it's very hard to endure and at the same time I understand it so empathetically and so it's a very very easy time for me to mother during Mm. I love to hear that my readers are always telling me that they're surprised to hear me talk about parenting teens because I've enjoyed it so much more, more or less. I mean, don't get me wrong. Of course, I'm not over romanticizing raising, you know, teenagers, but in general, they're, they're delightful. And I didn't, I wouldn't go back to toddlerhood for a million thousand million dollars. Yeah. That is so, a hard period. That's a hard period. Oh God. It, I, I can't even remember it. It's just a fog. Yeah, I love thinking about your boys just grown and rowdy and tumbling all over the place. And and you know what? They don't want anything from you. And that's really you don't. have to honor that, in my opinion. It's the only thing I have to do is keep one corner of my eye out, <laughs> making sure that they're really not hurting themselves. And otherwise they are all about self-defining self-initiating letting you know who they are and my your job it seems to me is to just make sure there's food in the fridge yeah that's a huge (laughs) one and for their friends it's huge and I also always tell mom I'm like look especially times five I mean I just cannot care about everything right and so I tell them figure out you'll get very practiced 
at when it is appropriate to just literally act like you did not see that or you did not hear it. <laughs> you just didn't, it didn't happen. You're just look the other way, walk into another room and just let that one go. Isn't it what they recommend on certain sort of emails that come in or problems that people, they call you. And if you just actually ignore it for a day, it works itself out and you don't even have to answer the email. <laughs> it's so true. I think that's a very, very interesting parenting tactic too, that I employ with regularity. Okay. Let me wrap this up with you. Cause you got to go finish a book. Gosh, oh, the last two weeks. Oh my God. I, I want to send you all the wine. Okay. Here's the last couple of questions. Obviously you are as into literature as you are into food and cooking. And so I love that about you. I'd love to know, we'd all love to know what you are, you know what, I already know the answer is zero because you're in the, you're at the end stages of a book, but what is, let's just go in the last calendar year, a, a book or two that you have read that you love, that you're recommending, that you can't quit thinking about, that we should probably put on our lists. Oh, that's so funny. I actually read all the time while I you write. You do, even it's, now? Yeah. And especially now, I think I'm, I'm, I keep reading books by people who don't want to write about what they're writing about to see if they've figured it out. And so I had just finished Kathy Park Hong, Minor Feelings, which I thought was so good. And she, she said, I just don't want to write about race, but here I go. And so she did that. And I had read Memorial Drive. I, is it Patricia Trethaway? And she definitely did not want to deal with the father in that book. And she didn't. So I wanted to see how she handled that. <laughs> so those were two good. I thought Shuggy Bane's so good. I happen to have read Annie Dillard's Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, which I think is from the 1970s. And yeah, um, that was that a good one girl. for me too. She's a master. What's your, do you have a preferred genre? Do you tend to reach for a, a specific space on the shelf? No, I don't. Okay. Yeah, me neither. It's a little okay. bit like when people used to recommend restaurants to me. I would, I would wait until about seven or eight people said the same name, and then I would go to that restaurant, and I'd do the same with books. When one really starts to rise to the top and percolate with a lot of people's minds, then I'm, I'm like, yeah, I'll read that. That's, that is me too. Yeah, the fifth or sixth or seventh time some, something has vid- visited me, I'm just assuming it's time. Does your new book have a title or can you even say it? It's sort of fluctuating back and forth. So I can't, I, I think it's next of kin and it also has kind regards. So it's somewhere in there. And as, as I hope you'll, you'll know, it's not the title. It's the freaking subtitle. I have to find the subtitle. <laughs> I just want to fling myself off a building when it comes to subs. I just, the, I always laugh like in publishing, it's, it's such a lack of, of, of innovation and creativity because almost all the subtitles kind of have the same exact structure Right. Just swap out the adjectives. It That's just, right. <laughs> I just so I just could pull all my hair out. Um, my lonely year of learning oh, French. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> totally. Um, every time I turn a book in, I propose an obnoxious subtitle. It, it is is a literary disaster. It's clunky and weird, and it always gets rejected. But one of these times, I'm gonna get one through, um, and just have a subtitle that's actually memorable. But um, I feel your, I feel your pain. Um, at least you're about done with this first draft and then you just go into absolute gauntlet of editing. 
Um, this is is so exciting for you. So exciting for us as your readers. I'm so thrilled to know that you are writing another memoir. I just, I will be the first person to buy it. So I hope I'm I'm prepared to lose everybody on this one. You know, there's not a lot of food in it, if any, then as I told you, suicide is a dark subject, but (laughs) it's not jolly, (laughs) but But again, I think even like going back to what you said earlier in this post COVID ethos that we're all in now, you know, it's changed us all fundamentally and communally. I'm not sure we're, I I think we're leaning into stories that are true, the true about the hard and because we're actually all experiencing it, every single one of us. And so I I think your book is well-timed on, I think you're, I think the collective readership is ready for it. And if not, they already paid you for it. So God, you, know, <laughs> you still win. Atta girl. Now you're talking. <laughs> That's good business. Uh, okay. Well, I'm cheering you on. I can't wait for print to open back up. I'm in New York City a lot and I will 100% be there as soon as we can. And Come just for dinner. cheer on all your work. I just really love what you do in the world. I'm so happy that you have committed to doing the things that you do well. And it's just a real delight for the rest of us. So thanks for being who you are. <laughs> You're so kind. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Feed those boys. They will, will. be, it'll be over in a one second. They're gone. So give them whatever they want. Got it. Okay. Thanks, Gabrielle. <laughs>